You're listening to the Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick is a horseman, trainer, international clinician, and author who helps empower horse people from all over the world with the skills, knowledge, and mindsets needed to create trusting partnerships with their horses. Warwick offers a free seven-day trial to his comprehensive online video library that includes hundreds of full-length training videos and several home study courses at videos.warwickshiller.com. G'day everyone, welcome back to the Journey On Podcast. I'm your host Warwick Schiller and I've got an amazing guest today. I've just finished recording the uh, interview with him and oh, I love this. So his name's Ishtar Howell. He is a meditation teacher and a Shaya monk, a gardener, a writer and an intuitive astrologer. It says Ishtar teaches meditation and serves as a spiritual guide helping people to cultivate awareness and relax into presence as a lived experience. Since 2015, he's also been working as an intuitive and an astrologer with a primary focus on helping people align more completely with their soul's purpose. And you know, if that sounds a bit woo-woo for you, he's definitely not. He's a very relatable guy and uh, I had a great time chatting with him and I hope you guys enjoy this interview as much as I do. Ishtar Hal, welcome to the Journey on Podcast. Warwick, thank you very much. I'm, I'm very pleased to be here. I'm, I'm glad you're here. You know, this whole podcast, I don't even know how it started out, but it started out, uh, I was talking to horse people, friends of mine who were, you know, pretty cool horse people, but it seems that um, the whole horse, the horses for us at least, have been, when you really get connected with horses, it kind of leads you on a bit of a, it's the, maybe the start of a spiritual path, you know, so we're, a lot of us are very infant on that path yet, but you've been on this uh, spiritual path all your life and I'd love to hear all about it because you're like, you're like one of those guys that's much further down the path than we are and we get to kind of hear stories about uh, things that maybe in store for us later on. So where do we want to start here? So uh, let me start with your, your, the, the one that interests me the most is you, uh, from an early age, it says you're interested in mystic and esoteric subjects. Tell me about that. And and how did that come about? Like, were you, were you a child of hippies (laughs) or, or were you, or, or was this just something in you from the beginning that didn't have an outside influence? I think I, uh, it's it's probably more of this more of the second one, but you know I think I wanted my parents in some ways to be uh, bigger hippies, uh, but they weren't, and and maybe they were just a little bit too young. They missed the Woodstock cutoff or or, or, or something like that. But I was like, what, what what's what's up with my parents? Did they live the sixties? Uh, what I would I would think sometimes, but no. Uh, I I remember being little things like I remember being at the at the public library. In my town, which was a wonderful place to go, and and this was before I could read. So my sister, my older sister, by about six seven years, she would uh, read me things that uh, either I or she thought were interesting. She picked up a, a one of these old Time Life books, and I remember one uh, specifically had had a had a photograph of um, uh, what I learned was a Tibetan Buddhist monk on a snowy mountainside with with blankets on them creating a big circle of of melted snow around their body i was completely mm. uh when i saw that there was you know completely 
um, transfixed by it. And then in that book, my sister sort of read some of the things. I remember my first introduction to the word, uh, and to the, to the words Buddhist monks and reincarnation. And, and both of those just, you know, rang in my head, uh, like a bell. I even remember thinking in the back, like, I think I believe in this reincarnation. It, 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 it seemed to make sense of a lot of things. And I, I had a lot of, experience as a, as a kid, but I didn't think of them in terms of being uh, spiritual or anything like that. You just sort of accept the the world that you're, you're born into and you find yourself in. And I, I used to, you know, for instance, uh, up until I was about nine or 10, and I think it, it faded at about that that age, I would do this thing when, when I was laying in bed at night and I would breathe in a certain way and I, then I would retain my breath uh, in the middle of an inhalation and an exhalation. While I was doing this, somehow my I would use my attention and I would go from the bottom of my spine up the top of my head and I, I would feel maybe within three or four breaths, uh, I would I would feel this uh, stream of you know, blissful energy running up my body that just made me feel so relaxed and so comfortable. And, and this was my method of, of getting myself to sleep. Uh, and, uh, you know, at, at a certain point I would, I would sort of let everything go near the end. And then I would either just go into a wonderful lights out sleep until the morning, or I would find myself going out, shooting out the top of my head, uh, still aware out the back wall of my bedroom over the big maple tree in the backyard, zooming up into the sky. And sometimes I would lose consciousness sort of mid-flight. And sometimes I would find myself going to what appeared like, I don't know, like a floating city, uh, sometimes halfway around the world in, in, in big white mountains. And, and sometimes I would wake up from these dreams, which is what I've, I reckon they were, just you know, an entertaining way to go to sleep and, and remember them. And sometimes I, I wouldn't. So, uh, you know, stuff like that. Do you feel, can, I just, can I just ask, yeah. do you feel like they were dreams or were they... Or do you feel like they were out of body experiences? Because, like a dream, you know, a dream is like I don't think you know you're dreaming, but it's not that full on three D, four D, almost four D, you know, more real than real sort of thing. Whereas I think an out of body experience would be like more real than real. Which do you have a sense of which one of those it might have been? I, I think uh, actually at, at this point, I, I believe that a large majority of them were out of body experiences. I, I wow. Y- years wow. later, I, I had some confirmation because I was raised to sort of uh, <laughs> uh, kind of try to keep two feet on the ground and, and sort of be a logical thinker, and and I appreciated the the Western scientific tradition, and these these were all uh, you know a big part of my upbringing. And uh, at one time, one of my first uh, you know, spiritual teachers, really, although we didn't have we didn't use those words uh, when I was I was fifteen or sixteen. Yeah, I don't know which birthday it was, but anyways, uh, I had woken up from one of those dreams one morning of. And it was it was really bizarre because in the dream I was in a floating sort of city above the lake that I, I grew up near, very big lake in Wisconsin, and I was giving a lecture on stuff I had n- neither any interest in at the time, nor, nor really any knowledge. And I was I, I I was giving a very lucid lecture on the future of psycho spiritual botany, and so I remember. Going from being in that lecture hall to being in my teenage body on the side, you know, Ben and I, my words was botany. 
<laughs> like, what? What? What was I saying? And and so you know, I, you know that that was entertainment until the next day. I, I went and talked to my friend Austin, and and without me saying anything, and I never told him anything about any of this stuff because it didn't seem to to be I don't know important. Really, he said that was a nice talk he gave on the ship last night, and and I, and I was and I was and I was like, uh, you know, like what? 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 What are you talking about? You were talking about your talk on spiritual botany. <laughs> I was like, oh, then I, then it, you know, kind of connected. Uh, and I was like, oh, oh, he, he said, like, I, I understood about half of it, but I think you were, you were doing really well. And then I was like, oh, do, 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 um, you see me there often? And he said, like, yeah, you're there, you're up there all the time. And, and I was like, and then we had a conversation about his framing of it, but whatever his framing of it was, at that point I had uh, some kind of objective confirmation. It was too specific for him to know this by chance. Either he was a telepath or, or, or this thing actually happened. And, and so that, that, then I was like, maybe a lot of those, a lot of those um, dream spaces were real. And, I, and then as I became a very serious meditator, I started to notice, I started having frequent lucid dreams and I started to notice sort of a, uh, a sort of a, sh- a pitch difference, uh, like an acoustical thing, almost a pitch difference mm. between a normal dream, a lucid dream, out of body experiences being a, another sort of thing over here, and and then uh, you know sort of going forward, I started to become a little bit more clever to what what went and what been. And who were, who was this guy that was listened to you in your in your dream? Oh God! Yeah. He, so this was—he's another—he's another whole, almost a whole story unto himself. Well, he was a—I think at the time that I met him, or that I knew him, he was like he was fifty-four, I was sixteen. He was one of sometimes would be one of the psychics at the local metaphysical bookshop. Uh, after after my mother died, and I had a near-death experience, and. Uh, about a year after that, I became really interested in trying to get back to the sort of states of consciousness that it sent me into. And I, through my sister, as many discoveries have come through my sister in this life, through my sister, I discovered the metaphysical bookshop. Uh, and I went in the back and I started reading and, and, and it was blowing my mind because I was reading about people having experiences that I was having and I had no idea exactly what, how to interpret them. And so I also met up with all these really fascinating, genuine psychics. Because I was always skeptical of that, but interested in that sort of phenomenon uh, from an early early age, and and, and they were pulling stuff out that uh, they ought not to have been. So Austin was was one of these, and I started hanging out uh, at his house, uh, which wasn't you know a long walk away. We had all sorts of fun. He used to uh, actually find my retainer for me. I had one of these sort of clear plastic retainers uh, mm-hmm. to keep in my uh, in the bottom. I hated the thing; it really hurt. And it was clear, so I would lose it all the time. If I set it down, you, you know, it's so small and transparent. And I didn't want, I, I would kind of panic when I thought I'd lost it because, well, oh, my God, my dad's going to kill me if I lose the retainer or something like that. It gets damaged. I'd run to the phone and I'd call Austin. i say, Austin, I lost the retainer. And he'd never been to my house and I never described it at all. And he would do pull this Edgar Casey stuff. He would he would say like I got it covered. I would talk to my guides. He'd always said guidance. You know, used interesting nouns. Uh, guidance is telling me it's in your TV room under the left front leg of the blue couch. He didn't know I had a blue couch in there that it was in the TV room. Uh, uh, it, it's 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 in between the uh, it, it's it's in the Newsweek. And so 
Uh, I went, I looked, I, this was the first time I went and looked and, and it didn't seem to be there. And I went back to the phone, you know, when it was, when phones were sort of attached by a cord to the wall back in those days. And I say, Austin, it's not there. He said, and then he'd be laughing. He said, like, ha, 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 ha. They told me you wouldn't find it the first time. You look, you, you, you need to search better. You, you weren't very careful. It's, it's, it's folded in the page. In the, you, you'll, and then I went back and there it was. And, and this, this used to happen. Oh, this must have happened about six, seven times um, to the point where uh, the last few times he would call me. And, and I would go to the phone. And somehow I knew it was him. He would call me and, and he would know that I've lost it already. And, and, and he said, like, it, it, he wouldn't even deal, bother with formalities. He would say, you know, it's there. It's on the kitchen table. You left it behind the peanut butter jar. <laughs> you know, and there, it's like, oh, I thought I looked there. You know, I was, uh, apparently I was really bad at finding this thing. And I, I didn't know that I, I, you know, it's funny when you're a teenager, you can have all these things happening to you. And, and uh, you know, they're kind of bizarre, but you, you, I'm only using my friend in my panic moments. I guess I didn't want to objectify him or anything or, you know, I, you know like, like that because he's more of a, a, a friend. Uh, but yeah, he was what was called um, uh, a walk-in. That's what he called himself. And this was uh, the first time I heard this term. And for him, what a walk-in was, was uh, you know, he explained it this way. He, would, he used to refer to himself before he died as the old guy or the other guy. And, and um, uh, Eldo Austin, years bef- a few years before I met him and before he had this death experience, was, was one of the notorious town assholes. So, you know, in, I don't know if I can say that on this podcast. Um, so, so you, you just did. I just, so we're good. Okay, that's good. So, you, you know, in a small town, everybody knows each other's business. And so when I first told my dad who I was hanging out with, he's like, you're hanging out with who? You, you know, then he proceeded to tell me some, some stories like, well, that guy you're describing. Okay, thanks for telling me this, dad. But that guy sounds like very differently than the cat I'm hanging out with now. Uh, because the the old Eldo before his death, he he even tried to choke a a loan officer at, at my dad's local bank uh, for not giving him some dubious loan. And so his story was he um, uh, he was on the stress test treadmill thing at the hospital, uh, and and apparently uh, he was prone for a heart attack because he had a massive one right on the treadmill and died. And then in Austin's story was, yeah, I came down and as the other guy was leaving, we, we basically tagged out and now I'm using this body and I have all the memories of, you know, I have all access to all the memories and stuff of this lifetime, but I'm, I'm, I'm a Navajo medicine man. And, and that, that guy, the only time I knew that so was when he was a, a cavalry soldier in General Crook's army. And, you know, this was the story, the story he told me. So, you know, he was a walk-in. So now I've heard some interesting stories before, but I've never heard of. Are you saying that the souls switched bodies? Well, yeah, they they switched use of the body. This was how he framed it. He at at another time he also really yeah at another time he also said, well, it's not exactly that, Thomas. He said uh, we were actually different aspects of the same soul. One lesser evolved, one more evolved. He would he would frame it like that, but okay. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the the facts on the ground were were that um, you know, being a small town, everybody knows each other. Is that it? It it he died, came back, and then it was within a very short time that he lost most of his friends, had to get a divorce, and had a fairly. uh, detailed understanding of certain Native American rituals, uh, which was, you know, confirmed by folks down in the Southwest. Uh, and, you know, I think he only retained one of his friends uh, from the, the pre-death 
days. Uh, and, and so, yeah, hearing that term walk-in for the first time was kind of funny because I, every time I'd walk by a hair salon, it would say, walk-ins welcome. And I caught, thought, like, right. this whole society is much more metaphysically inclined than I thought. You know, and I was going, like, oh, I didn't, why didn't I see this before? And then, you know, I was having a blonde moment. It's like, oh, you know, of course. What are you thinking? You right. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the whole, the whole, um, well, the near-death thing, thing interests me, but it's, and sometimes I think people, maybe he was one of them, they have have to have that before they have that big aha moment to realize, oh, there's a lot more going on <clears throat> here than we originally were led to believe. But it sounds like you kind of, with this whole being excited about the metaphysical bookshop yeah. and all that sort of thing, sounds like you kind of were on that bit of a bent early on. Yeah. But yep. you had a near-death experience at age 13. Yeah. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, you're right. I, I Maybe I didn't need that uh, because there was the inclination uh, years before that as a child and there were all sorts of experiences, but, you know, happened it did. And, oh, God, I was... Uh, I was really happy at the time in my life. I was, I was extremely happy with how my nuclear family felt. You know, my mom, dad, sister. In fact, maybe in some ways I was starting to be the happiest that I'd ever been uh, in, in that situation. And I remember uh, I, was, I was playing a baseball game and got hit by a pitch. I went to the hospital, or went to the doctor's office to you know, get an x-ray. turns out I'd broken my arm and I was going to miss much of the next baseball season, which was, the, for me, the big bummer. So, so that night, as I'm talking with my mom about to go to bed, it just flies into, flies into my uh, mouth without me thinking about it. Mom, are you going to die soon? I'd never asked her that question before. I was never concerned about that. Uh, if, if I was concerned about a parent, it might have been more my dad because he'd had a emergency gallbladder surgery a few years before. And I remember how tense my mom was when we were driving to the hospital for that. So I've never worried about my mom in that way. And the question actually kind of stunned her a bit. Uh, I, I think it came in with some kind of oomph. Uh, it's what it felt like mm. in here. And then she said, you know, I'm not going to die. And then she said, of course, I'm going to die someday, but it's not going to be for a very long time. And and then she told me, oh, you know, I'll, I'll be with I'll be with you as long as you need me. And so then I was like, okay, yeah, well, geez, what what was you know? Basically said, what was what was that? You know, I don't know. So I went to I went to bed, and then I woke up in. Can I, can I just can I just interrupt there for one second? At this point in time, does your mother and your father, but does your family understand or get that you're kind of? maybe a little bit different than the rest of us and interested in this esoteric and metaphysical type stuff? No, not really. You know, I kept, there was, no. it was. In- so when she, when you, so when you said that, it's not like she's like, well, Thomas, he's, you know, he's, he gets mm. messages from somewhere else and there's something to it. It, it didn't, it would, it would be like asking her, you know, what are we having for breakfast? Yeah. I, I, you know, I mean, she was shocked. So there was something, it, it did hit her and I never really saw her stunned like that. Not, not from something, mm. That was she was a fairly formidable person. That was not some. That was rare. So maybe she did. I'm I'm not quite sure. I mean, I had so many other interests at the same time too. I I don't know if they ever mm. Uh, mm. singled out these. You know, this this kind of occult and esoteric stuff. And I think maybe neither did I because there was just such so many things to be interested in uh, as as a kid. So so yeah, not not really. Uh, 
And I woke up the next morning uh, with, with a start as if I'd just been sprinting like from somewhere else into my body. The, the, that, there was a physical force that shot my body um, upright and I was uh, hyperventilating and gasping, trying to catch my breath. And it was at that mo- exactly at that moment that my mom and dad were um, walking right outside my bedroom door. And I, I slept with the door open, actually. I was more comfortable with the door open. And so I, I yeah, for other reasons, I, so I saw them there at that exact time. And I, without thinking, it was coming out of my mouth, I've got something I've got to tell you. And like, like that twice, really strongly. And then they, you know, caught their attention and... And then I couldn't find the damn, the, the message. I was so frustrated. I was like, I forgot what I was supposed to tell you. And, and it, it was, I was so frustrated. I, I, don't, I, I don't know how it was, that they had to kind of come in. And they, they just they kind of calm me down. Uh, and I was like, okay. And I got my bearings and got my stuff uh, ready to go to school. And that was the last time I saw the two of them together. Because they were going out on, on their, uh, I think, almost daily morning walk that they would do, and I walked off to uh, middle school, and 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 so yeah, that was that was that. I had a lovely uh, day at school, and it was like the second to last day of of the year, so no homework, you know, go collect some awards, uh, you know, stress free, and and then I got home and I was actually watching a film with my mom, and then we 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 drove my sister off to her her brand new job which was in a big movie theater uh just at the edge of town and as we were pulling out of the uh the parking lot uh it looked like a a, a normal uh crossing of the divided highway there was some car that was way down there and we we pulled off and i um was turning to talk to my mom and and then apparently there was another car there that we didn't track that um was, you know, hidden behind another car and at some point just decided to maybe just gun it uh, in, in acceleration. And uh, so I, I looked over and there was just a big Lincoln town car, um, something like that, you know, big wide cars right outside my mother's door. And, you know, and, and, I mean, like that. And I could see the driver's face clearly. Uh, everything. So in that moment, uh, I, I, I was surprised because I didn't seize up. I didn't experience any fear. In fact, my whole physiology, physiology uh, started to calm down. And I had, you know, my, my first thought was, was um, actually, oh shit, but it wasn't a panicked one because it was predicated on the, the sense that this is it. This, this ride's over, you know, right, right now. And, uh, and and then I had kind of a philosophical thought, which was, I really thought this one was going to go more than thirteen years, and and that was, that was the exact thought. It's like, hmm, I guess I I guess I misread the script or something. That that kind of uh, kind of musing. And then I had always been interested in the phenomenon that people reported of seeing their whole life flash before their eyes. I was a little bit skeptical of it. I I, I thought, well, how can how can that be so? And and so there then there it happened. Uh, like like a tape, and uh, only it wasn't just uh, it was a what I was seeing was more expanded than what I remember experiencing. Uh, what I was seeing was everything in minutest detail and in in eight K HD, uh, sometimes from multiple perspectives all at the same time, but not in a confusing way. Crystal clarity, and and, and with me in a sense was this uh, what I often thought of as this kind of. 
a higher aspect of my consciousness or totally objective aspect of consciousness. To tell you the truth, most of the times that I picked up on that aspect of consciousness as a as a, as a kid and a teenager, I was I had an oppositional relationship with it because it would it would kind of come and say like that's not kind of that's not wise, and I'd be like, oh come on, shut up, you know, we're we're gonna go do our do our stupid thing here. <laughs> and uh, but here I wasn't it wasn't oppositional at all. I was I was completely it was as if I was merging into it, and it was as if guiding me through all the in some ways the successes and the failures of you know of of life in a completely non-judgmental but totally objective and sparing nothing uh sort of way so every every place where i had like acted out of pretense lied uh because i was afraid and any in place really where i was afraid and sort of acted from it uh we we saw it it was and we didn't just see it but as we saw it it was cast off it felt as if I was one bit by bit having all this tension that I had no idea that I was carrying um, stripped off of my body. And it was like having a, having a high, deeply constrictive suit, you know, uh, just peeled off of me as we went. And, and so as, as that happened, it became clearer and clearer and clearer, even in their life review process, that everything that had ever transpired in my life was completely perfect or bathed in some kind of singular substrate you know but by the end of it i there was this you know what i felt when the words i would use then and you, i would still use now was I, I i felt that everything had been made of love the whole time and still was and 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 even right as the review ended i was as i was still somehow had time to still be looking at this car now that was about to hit me in the clouds in the distance and the in the sky and my Mother's shoulder and the sky was actually very beautiful. Uh, I, it was the most alive that I'd ever been, in, in, a, in a sense, right, right there. And it was, in a, I had a sense of being everywhere in my body, but everywhere all at the same time. And there was a sense of, I was completely melted into, into everything and into the thing that was underneath everything. And, and, and then, you know, boom. Uh, and I, I have remember having my body uh, quickly go to my right and, and have my head slam against the, uh, the, the glass of the door that didn't break. And I didn't have a bruise either, which was, which was strange. I was concussed. And then I woke up, uh, you know, with, with the uh, uh, ding, ding, ding of the, the you know, seatbelt uh, sound going. And the uh, EMTs and folks and fire people were getting out the big sort of skill saws type things that they used. Mm-hmm. They, they kind of had to cut the cut in the car. And then I remember like being, being pulled out by very strong sort of skillful hands uh, and, and put onto a gurney and, and uh, moved and they're asking me questions. And uh, I, I didn't know a damn thing. I didn't know my name or anything. I, uh, I, the only thing I knew that was, that was my mom over there. I knew that, I knew that relationship of uh, everything else was, was, you know, due to a concussion and we were in the ambulance and that was another uh, strange thing which later I read about other people experiencing I was conscious of of looking up my eyes but at the same time I I was looking down at my body from the top of the ambulance and kind of sort of everywhere and it was both both were happening and my mother called my name twice and and I answered both times that I was okay and the second time it was very clear that she had registered it and 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 so 
it was clear she registered it because her breathing changed from, um, you know, very difficult breathing to uh, just relaxed. It was like her job was done. And then I, I almost felt like a whoosh, you know, go by my consciousness. It's, it, the language is vague here, but I, it's like I felt her go. But, you know, in my state, I didn't, I didn't have some sense. I thought my mom was going to make it, you know, right? I, did, I was not thinking that this was the, these were the last words that were going to be. Uh, exchange between us. It just was not a thought. And as soon as I were having that, it's as if we're here now we're in the hospital and, uh, you know, they've got, um, she's behind some curtains over there and they're working on her and I'm out. I guess they figured I was mainly okay, but I'm still strapped down in case there was spinal injuries or anything like that. And then, you know, I found out that she didn't make it uh, from my dad who was there and my sister. And so, it's you know, it's just a blur after that of grief you know, and and uh, going home and all of that, I couldn't say there was much uh, mystical that I was tracking, and uh, yeah, that that was that was that. But uh, a few days later, I started to you know, I thought I was in shock, and I was you know knew what shock was. And my mother had um, I think Elizabeth Kubler Ross's book. So my mother, uh, the last few years of her life, she was working as a therapist. So she had lots of uh, interest in psychology and, and these things. And, you know, we were sort of brought up with, you know, little echoes of Freud and Adler and Jung on the periphery and Carl Rogers and, uh, you know, you know that sort of stuff. And, and there was Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And I opened it up. I was like, all the stuff I was experiencing, yeah, that, 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 that. It's, it's like I was going through her stages of grief uh, as if it was a um, uh, textbook, uh, as if I was, I was adhering to it. And yet... I started to have this other thing happen, which I first thought was shock. I was like, oh, man, I got to keep getting myself into shock because this is great. Uh, because my, I, I found that there was a silence inside me or behind me or everywhere. And, and it, I, it wouldn't go. And uh, it was deeper than what I'd experienced as a child, I think, in some ways. So immediate. But it was this, it, sometimes it felt like, um, I had no back, backside, no back, no back of the head, no back of the heart, as if I, if I relaxed, I would just find myself going into this vast space. And I figured, oh, this must be dissociation from shock or something like that. And, mm. I, and then I, uh, but then this bliss would come and run, come through me like it was the most wonderful feeling. And I, then I started realizing I wasn't afraid of anything. Uh, and <laughs> it's like I had been. And, and it was, it was, it was wonderful that that part was wonderful. The other part, you know, was roughshod teen trying to grieve their lost mother. They were happening at the same time. And, and so we had to, you know, have both sides of it. All right. Did, when you said about the fear, then did you, did you realize that you had no fear, which made you realize that, oh, there used to be a lot of fear there that you didn't even know was there. Yeah, is that? Yeah, yeah. So, oh. so you you you, are now, you now don't have fear, but because you don't have fear, you didn't notice it was there until it wasn't. There. Yeah, 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 mm. yeah, yeah. It, that that was, and and that that got me thinking, you know, quite a bit too. I mean, uh, it'd be like, wow, I, I've thought I've I've had a in the scheme of the world, I've had a really easy life. You know, and look at all that tension that I was walking around with, with 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 such mm. with with you know, externally in many ways, uh, of a really easy life. And it's like my God, 
and we don't know, and we don't notice it. And, and so I would, uh, well, I, it would come up in my interactions with people. I kept this all to myself, mind you, actually. There was a few times I was about to say something to people, but then this break, not, not a fearful break, but like a, came in from the back and said like, no, you don't want to do this. We're not going to understand this. And you need to, you, you know, you have this stuff of fragile psychology. You need to, you know, kind of let this stuff develop without any interference from, from people. So I was like, okay, that seems reasonable. And I did, you know, so... Looking back on that now, <clears throat> you know, I was reading um, Gabor Mate's um, The Myth of Normal a couple of years ago when it first came out, and he was talking to somebody who said, yeah, I didn't have any trauma in my the best childhood. I didn't have any trauma. And Gabor Mate said to him, as a child, did you have an adult that you could go to that you could be totally honest about anything you were feeling? And, and the guy said, no. And, and Gabo Mate says, well, there's your trauma <laughs> there you right go. there. So with looking back now, um, do you feel that you may have been better off if there was somebody you could have had those conversations with? Or do you, on a totally different note, do you feel – like that wasn't your path, you know, like the, the whole, you know, the whole wounded healer archetype sort of thing, like you have all this stuff happen to you that that maybe at the time seems like it's bad and then when you get further along you realise that was part of your soul's purpose and that had to that, that trauma had to be there to help you become who you were supposed uh, to yes. be. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, second, the second one. <laughs> The second option, mm. and and you know, late last say after this NDE thing, which I didn't even I did not register it as an NDE probably until twenty seventeen or sixteen or something like that. I just mm. I didn't put it in that box either. Uh, it, after that, I, I mean, even before, it's like I I could just about say anything to my sister. Uh, I could mm. just about say anything to my mother when she was alive. Not necessarily everything to to anybody, uh, but they were. Uh, and I could say a lot to my dad, but you know, my, my mother, you know, I think also, and my sister, uh, my mother being a trained therapist as well, and I think having a knack for it uh, was yeah. was was really really I think an expert at holding a space, a, a non judgmental space where you could say anything. Mm. Uh, mm. And, yeah. and so yeah, she had she had extra skills uh, in that department. But after that, I mean, that there's my. Uh, there's my sister, and then there were people that the psychics, you know, the, the cool well, psychics. You know, your sister was, your sister was dragging you to the metaphysical bookstore, so she was definitely open to, probably open to hearing stories about stuff. Um, I read somewhere online, might be on your website, a passage that I actually wrote down here because I want to read it back, and it's to do with your NDE. But it said each and every experience of my life was seen in perfect detail along with a thorough knowledge of every time I made a choice from fear, limitation, or conditioning. As I experienced those moments, they were completely forgiven, replaced instead with a sense of wholeness and love. Now, to me, that sounds like a plant medicine journey because I've had a few. Yes. And yeah. and so you you went to that place without, you know, you can get there through psychedelics, you can get there through meditation, get there through lots of things, but this... NDE and your NDE also. I want to talk about that. Was not one of the NDEs where the paramedics look up and go, yeah, he's, "He's gone,", gone. right, right, and then you come back. Right. You, 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 you didn't actually. It, it wasn't the your your body 
stops working and your soul kind of hovers around and goes to a place and then they say, no, you've got work to do, go back, and then you come back sort of thing. It was not that sort of NDE. No. Um, But, yeah, when I read that, that, that passage, you know, each and every experience of my life was seen in perfect detail along with a thorough knowledge of every time I made a choice from fear, limitation or conditioning and, and I think that's the thing we, you know, we make a lot of choices from fear, limitation or conditioning and we have a, we tell ourselves stories about ourselves about that stuff without even knowing that we are. Like we're on our worst, we're on our own worst enemy. Like we're putting shit on ourselves about those things that we've done and you don't even know that you have been putting shit on yourself about it and then in this moment and when you told me like you looked up and you saw that Lincoln town car about to hit the car and then the next five or ten minutes of conversation come out of you before that car goes another three feet and hits the car you're in but it happens in you know how fast is a car traveling you know 40 50 miles an hour i I doubt i doubt it was even three seconds I, i think it must have been it must have been under a second or less, yeah, yeah, and all it, like time slows yeah. down. I had a, an accident before, years ago that I've talked about in the podcast before I came to America where I blew it. I was driving about 75 miles an hour on a country road, blew a front tire and Ooh. careened off the road into a stand of trees. Um, and it was probably three seconds from the, the tire blow until I hit the trees, but time slowed down. I was thinking, you know, I've got to get, I, I'm supposed to play football tonight. I've got to call my coach. I can't call my coach because, well, I could call my roommate and he could call my coach. And yeah, just time slows down and all that stuff goes through you. I didn't have the, I didn't have the thoughts go through me that went through you, but yeah, there's a, a lot happens in that point in time. Um, I just, I just love the way you said I experienced those moments. They were completely forgiven and replaced instead with a sense of wholeness and love. Did that sense stay or did at some point in time you kind of go back to poorly judging yourself for your fear, limitations and conditioning? Stayed. It mostly stayed for about two or three months. Mm. It would, it was kind of also coexisting with, with that, you know, weird mix of also being a teenager who just lost their mother. And then a little bit near as it, as a, as a sort of three months progressed, it was a summer. Summers were always good for me to kind of go into a transformational stage and then be able to come back, uh, somebody else as I, as I wanted. That seems to be how I use them anyways. But as, as I sort of got closer to the end of that three months, I started, you know, picking up, I was trying to, trying to, um, I suppose be the person that I was before. And, and I think I did. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, so by eighth grade, which was the next school year or grade eight, uh, you know, I was, I was pretty, pretty forgetful again. It was, and so that, that, that sort of wholeness, I think was decidedly in my back pocket and, and not, not so much in the foreground. And boy, that was, that was a pretty wild year. And I had to wait till the next um, summer break to even start to try to explore again, and and that's when I walked. Actually, that's when I walked into the into a metaphysical bookstore for the first time. Was was when I had the bandwidth in the next summer to to sort of explore things outside of school. 
It would have been hard to drag you out of that bookstore because I know what they're like. Like, oh, look at that book. Look at that book. Oh, yeah. oh God. Yeah, I was so grateful to the owner, Jason. Uh, <laughs> I was very careful not to damage any of the books. You know, I, I didn't have a lot of money as a kid. I was not in control necessarily of my purse strings either. Uh, and he would have allowed me to read like as many of the books as I like. And basically, I, now this was a tacit agreement. <laughs> uh, every now and then, I would buy a pendant. I could get some money together, and I would I would buy like a cool mm. a cool pendant. And that was kind of my way of uh, paying my rent, so to speak. Right. And, and then I discovered um, I used to just be in the history and biography section of the public library, which is you know just across the street actually. And so then I discovered the uh, philosophy, religion, and New Age section as well, and and just dove into those books with with reckless abandon. And just hoovering stuff up, and it was the early days of the internet, so I'd click on a website, I'd go make some toast, come back, and you know, in four minutes, the site, the next page would be up. Right. And, and it you would make that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Doing, doing, doing things that way, yeah. exactly. So, uh, unfortunately, my my um, normal scholastic of output started to suffer comparatively because it was hard for me to be interested in it when when issues of 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 the meaning of life were, were so for, were, were in the forefront and, and those sorts of things. And, uh, it was hard for me to, uh, I, I used to feel very at home in the civilization that I grew up in. And I, I really felt like, Oh, that definitely there's a place for me. And I like that place. And I like where this groove is going. And, and after that, I was, when I got honest with myself, which was difficult for me to do, it, it was like, Oh my God, you know, like what <laughs> I, I do not, you know, there's no no place here, and I it you know over the high school years, very I think awkwardly, uh, I sort of I suppose became a spiritual seeker, and at first I think mm-hmm. I was a part time seeker, and and uh, you know I really didn't see any sort of uh, practical route for me to live like that. I was you know in some ways I was thinking to myself, well, I'm kind of if I'm honest with myself and get rid of delusions of grandeur, I'm just some some kid in Wisconsin and you know, that's that kind of cool stuff in these, some of these books doesn't happen to kids in Wisconsin. You know, that didn't necessarily voice that thought, but that was kind of back there. And so I thought, okay, I'm not going to be, I don't want to be a lawyer or a politician anymore, which is what I wanted to do before. And I thought I wanted to be sort of a public servant. And, you know, if I was lucky, be good enough that someone would shoot me in the head, you know, uh, because one of the questions you chose when you chose your questions is what did you want to, what did you want to be as a child? So you might as well do that one right now. Uh, you wanted to be, a, did you want to be a politician? Oh Lord. Oh Lord. I, I, I did. That was, that was, uh, I think I wanted to be a lot of things like many, many of us do, but that was, um, yeah, by average, that was probably the, the biggest one. I, I thought, you know, maybe we can, uh, and I think part of it was, you know, sort of like being a power mad little boy. And, you know, in some way or, or and part of it was like, I think, a genuine uh, idealistic uh, connection to being uh, a public servant and, and helping uh, better other people's lives and sort of, uh, you know, w- working hard for other people. And that that the, phew, yeah, that was <laughs> pulled out uh, before that. I wanted to be a ghostbuster. Right. And and it's just I didn't. Okay. Uh, yeah, okay. that was before. I think that was actually a truer vocation because i was doing that uh and i had to grow up with all those ghosts around but uh uh, that thank god that movie actually was was therapy for me it made me having these wonderful having a comedy movie about ghosts uh i think made it okay for me to experience all the stuff i was experiencing and and was a great help uh for for me to you know uh 
get into costume and play Ghostbuster in, in my own house. Mm. So yeah, I okay. wanted to be a parapsychologist, but I didn't think, oh, that's mm. not a real career. And I don't, and so I kind of, you know, let that one go. Let that one go. Yeah. So from your bio, it says that um, you became a heavy meditator when you were in high school, age 17, and you basically were a, a self-appointed monk in your own home. Tell us about your your 17-year-old monk self. Oh, my God. Yeah, well, that I actually, there was this almost like a, almost felt like a, a different, not a different psych, but a, a layer of the soul that I could feel down in my gut from as early as 14 that that would be coming up. And I was kind of afraid of it. And I started to call it the crazy monk. And and I got kind of got a sense of if I go into that, if I could, I could feel these desires, which seemed strange to my previous self, like, why do you, why in the world do you want to go to the Himalayas? You know, you should, you know, why don't, why don't you want to be a politician anymore? Why do you want to go do these crazy ascetic practice that nobody's taught you? Why do you want to med- meditate? I didn't even know, know how. And, and so I had an uneasy relationship at first with, with that thing. And then as, as I went, I learned more things and learned some meditation practices. And, I, and, and eventually I was like, okay, this is, that feels like that is a, a truer, uh, that is a truer um, impulse and all this stuff I'm trying to sort of wear mostly on behalf for other people. And so I gave into it. And, and when I gave into it, I, I was, you know, kind of a little bit always crazy. I had to try to do things 200%. Otherwise I felt I wasn't really uh, doing it. And I said, okay, I guess I got to meditate six hours a day because if this is the most important thing in life, why should I screw around with, with all this other stuff? I'm just a, you know, just a liar then. And, and so I was like, okay, shoot, I guess I'm going to do this. Uh, and then I started to, and it wasn't always friendly, because, happy because I was doing all these ascetic practices, like uh, heavy concentration meditation. And uh, let's let's just um, for the people listening at home, if you're not sure what ascetic means, it's it's basically devoid of pleasure. Like, <laughs> you know, it's it's basically like the world's biggest dopamine detox. You <laughs> I have to say so. Yes, yeah, so take. I mean, I, then I guess I got some fringe benefits, but I have to say, I mean, I was. Uh, you know, taking cold showers at 3 a.m. every day. That was when I would wake up at 3 a.m. Then it was cold shower and I couldn't waste any time. So I couldn't screw around with starting on warm and easing into it. I just thought, okay, let's just turn it down. We're going to pull our body into this thing and maybe scream a little bit. And I, I would be crying sometimes. I'd be like, what are you doing? And, and uh, you know, meditating by counting from one to 10 with in in and, and trying not to think of and not thinking of anything else besides one two three four etc. Yeah, that was difficult, and I I do not teach people those practices because I don't think they're that effective. But I got good at that. Uh, and, did Did you have okay? So like, let's say that practice, the counting yeah, one to ten yeah. thing. Did 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 you have like when you went into your high school monk yeah. <laughs> stage, getting up at three o'clock in the morning, doing the cold showers, yeah. meditating six hours a day, or whatever. Yeah. Did the, your meditation practices were they ones that you'd like read about, or these ones you just kind of came up with yourself? No, it was it was um, read about or was taught uh, in person, okay. and and uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, not nothing that I came up with myself. I I, I wanted you know to try to get it from a source that knew better than me. That was that was always a right. So thing. okay, so in, to run us run us through a regular day <laughs> as a seventeen year old monk in high school, three a.m. wake up, cold shower. Yeah. Then would you meditate after that? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'd either do um, 
I'd either do a Qigong practice, uh, some Qigong practices that I was taught, or I would do some Hatha yoga for 20 to 30 minutes. Then after that, I would go into usually about two hours of meditation or three in the morning, depends on really the Qigong stuff. Uh, There'd be like one hour of just following the breath, which actually became my most pleasurable one at the time because I didn't have to deal with one through 10. But there would be like Mm. 45 minutes of going one to 10. Uh, And, you know, after after the meditations uh, were, proper meditations were over, I would sort of meditatively make myself a, I think of it very luxurious, 10 grain cereal if I was hungry at all on, on the stove. And, you know, I was fed and and then I would do my homework after meditation in the morning because I actually did find that I was sharp I was sharp and clear mm. uh, and and so I would I, I decided that I have to make my meditation the number one priority and school will be second that was just my commitment from the start I had the best grades I had in high school of, of, of any year that year and and so uh, I would sometimes find that that the understanding of what I was reading would just as if just come and flow through like it uh, never quite had before. My memory turned eidetic. It was always very, very good, my, my memory, in some ways almost eidetic, but it went full eidetic for some reason at that point uh, to the point where um, if I was taking a test in psychology class uh, and I would you know, have the, uh, the, the question sheet in front of me, I would have a, a totally clear picture of page 54 and, and fourth paragraph down in my mind of what of what the answer was it, it had become so so this was actually rather amazing i i would um i think I, there was grace helping me because i remember once i had to write a a five-page paper for english class and i actually really hadn't gotten a start on it uh because of my meditation schedule that i had to keep up and i was 40 minutes before i was supposed to turn it in and i loved that teacher to death she was wonderful i didn't want to uh, disappoint her and I sat, and it's like it just wrote itself, literally. And it was the best. Really? It was the best paper I had ever written. It was clear. It had humor. It was completely germane, coherent. The transitions were perfect. Not a, not a single really uh, hard thought went into it. It was just. It was just like pour, like I was pouring water out of a out of a cup. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's so bef- yeah. Before we got on here together, I had asked you, had you listened to any of the episodes of the podcast? Did you know much about the podcast? And you said you'd listened to Lucy Grace, who mm. is the one who introduced us, and Shalane Harkin, who she's like a mystic poet. Mm. She downloads stuff. Mm. Do you think that was a download? Uh, a little or bit. Or had it been mulling around in your head and you'd, you'd kind of written it in your head, but you hadn't written it out yet? Uh, that's how no, I no, I hadn't done like, that. Spent that, a lot of time in my head. I almost wouldn't call it the da- yeah. You could call it the download. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. It was it was definitely coming from like I call the, you know, I often would have have this experience in those days of having a giant funnel, like structure mm. uh, above my head. It's like the top of my head would disappear in meditation. I would have things flow in in and out of that thing, and and in that case, it was like boom, just just coming right out. So uh, I did not do the due diligence of thinking about it ahead of time in, in that case. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So that's your uh, that's your seventeen year old high school. You graduate high school and then you move to a monastery in on the Oregon coast. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I had a had a brief. And how did interlude. you find this? Yeah. How do you how did you find this? Uh, like, how do you a boy from Wisconsin? How do you go? 
that's the place in Oregon I want to go. Did you get introduced to someone from there? How did you find it? Well, yeah, almost like that. Yeah, I had um, one week, so I had arranged to graduate. I had enough credits uh, that I was allowed to graduate half year of my senior year. And and for some reason, you know, because I actually I really wanted out, and you know uh, at the time, and I probably could have stayed longer, been all right, but uh, I really wanted out. They allowed me to arrange that, and so it was January, and and so um, one week after I graduated, I, I was invited by my su- my soon to be first brother in law uh, to a meditation class, the the practice that he did. Uh, my sister and I had met him at the local grocery store, and we invited him to uh, come to the first meeting of our, our metaphysical society that we started. And, and it turned out that they just were, you know, talking the whole afternoon, evening after that. So they were, you know, kind of <laughs> becoming, a, becoming a couple almost right off the bat in a way. And, and I, I didn't know his practice, but I could tell that whatever he was doing, I know it's good. Because we were him and I were meditating together. I was what I was doing, him doing that, and I, I knew it was good. And, and um, but I was I was stubbornly devoted to what I was doing, and I wouldn't deviate. And and I was very famous for saying no to lots of social invitations and everything. I just lots of no's going on. And and when I when I uh, I was praying to Babaji of of you know I, because Yogananda in his autobiography said you could pray to Babaji I was praying help me find my path you know I know that I, I don't think any of these brochures that I've received none of them are are, are the monasteries I'm supposed to be going to and so uh, this kind of ball came down into my head and and kind of with a pitch because I was very familiar with sort of pitches uh, and uh, there was a voice that said like you know pay attention to this pitch because uh, pay attention to this energy uh, because when it comes next, that'll be that'll be your sign that this is this is where you need to go. So it was like two days later, I was I was uh, coming home from picking up litter, and and there was my future brother-in-law and my sister uh, on our on our front porch, and you know I was I was feeling that pitch then as I was walking down the block, and as my brother-in-law started speaking to me, it got high. And he said, basically said, do you want to come to a meditation class in Minneapolis uh, this upcoming week? And I said, yep, you know, just like that. Yes, uh, kind of like like an eruption through me. And and so I went to this thing and and I I thought it was when I got there because I I didn't ask him any questions about its its history, its the nuts and bolts of it, nothing. But when I when I got there in the class, I was I was really skeptical. I thought like. Oh dear Lord! <laughs> you know these people aren't serious. This looks like some watered down boomer cult type thing. You, you know that this was. And I was like, oh come on, um, and and the, and the techniques weren't in Sanskrit; they were in English. I thought that can't work because English is a dumbass language compared to Sanskrit. You know, in my in my head, and I do the thing, and it's like, oh my God, what what happened? You know, I was I was sent into the the, the deepest sort of state of consciousness since I experienced since the car accident. And and since and since oh, childhood, really? something, something similar. Oh God, yeah. I mean, I was right there, and and I, I'd reached that point during my concentration days, but I would almost reach it after I'd exhausted myself with 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 how hard I was going. Then it was like at the end of my ex- exhausting myself, I would fall into this bliss, and I would probably have to go go fall asleep. But I was having it thirty seconds into this meditation practice, and and it was sticking around. You know, for for the evening when I'm away from the course and at night, and 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 it was just building over this two and a half day course, 
And, and, you know, I was, I was trying to be objective and say like, okay, this is interesting. You know, maybe I'm, I'm experiencing a workshop high or something like, like that. Or, and, of, but, you know, basically before the course was over, I walked up to the two teachers and I said like, do you have a monastery? You know, because I can be ready. I can have my affairs settled in 48 hours and I want to come to this monastery and I'll do whatever I have to do. I'll work, I'll earn my keep. Trust me. I'm a hard worker. And, and they're, they're kind of like, what the, <laughs> you know, this guy's kids just coming up with all this intensity. And they're like, well, I'm so sorry. We sold our monastery. The property has been sold. It's like, ah, you know, and, and then they're like, uh, but we know some people who have started meditation centers here and there. And so I, uh, I started, um, and it just so turns out that my brother, my future brother-in-law had a brother who would soon be associated with one of these meditation centers. So he is that for some reason uh, that, that to me, I was like, okay, at least I know somebody who knows somebody. And, and there's, mm. there's kind of a, so maybe I should go there. And I started um, calling this um, center in the U S on the phone. <laughs> they had a poor guy kind of having to run interference. I'm like, I'm sorry, we're in a very deep course right now. Uh, you know, I'm glad you called, but maybe call back in a few months when, when the course is over. And I was calling Idaho from, Wisconsin. And anyways, uh, uh, it was three months between um, me learning the practice and me eventually ending up in Oregon. And I, I had thought that I should move to Seattle just intuitively, instinctively. I loved the city. I had familial connections there. And um, then my sister and uh, at that time, Josiah, uh, my future brother-in-law, uh, were like, hey, we'll come with you too. Let's all move out there together. You know, it'll be easier to make it as three. And I was like, yeah, sounds great. So we went out there. I thought I was just going to be in Seattle. Love that city. It was, we're walking 10 miles around town every day, applying for jobs. Uh, and I thought, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll land a job and I'll be in Seattle for the summer and I can sort of assess what I want to do next in life. But it, it became, it just became sort of to me obvious that, no, I just needed to get to that monastery that I was kind of wasting time not doing that. So I I found, got a hold of a new phone number on the Oregon coast because this group had moved and uh, got on a call with, with a very friendly uh, interviewer. And we seemed to click on the phone. He said, you know, why don't you come on down? I said, like, should I come on down as an interview in which I intend to stay for a long time? And he said, yes. And and so this is this is what I, I did. Uh not long after. So that's, that's how I went from there to there. And I remember actually seeing my brother-in-law's brother. I thought I'd, I was seeing my brother-in-law just with a beard. I was like, what in the world? They looked so similar. And, and uh, when, when I first reached that house. So yeah, that was, that's three months. So your brother-in-law had taken you to this meditation thing in Wisconsin. Yeah. Minneapolis, uh, next state over. Minneapolis. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Next state over. Um, what was this, what was different about this meditation? God, what, what, what and, and what is it? What, what, what's this? What is this monastery you went to? What branch of what is it? Jeez, yeah, I know. It's well, it's sort of rather, rather quite new. In fact, if I was going in, if I'd read more about it and, and you know found like a dirt site or something on the internet, I'd be like, oh man, maybe don't go here. Uh, <laughs> it, it's this practice called the Ishaya's Ascension uh, or Ascension Meditation. And, you know, I, I, I remember actually at the grocery store before, uh, Josiah, was, at that point, Josiah was, now Darshan, was telling me about these Ashayas, and I was, and I was pretending to know what, they, what he was talking about. I had no idea. 
Uh, anyhow, this, it was this almost like a TM spinoff in a way, Transcendental Meditation, okay. but not. Yeah. Yeah. So Transcendental Meditation uses uh, uh, Sanskrit bija mantras uh, down effortlessly. Mm-hmm. And the fellow that started this ascension uh, had been a Transcendental Meditation teacher from about 1970 to about 1988, 89. He was, uh, you know, for much of that time living in Fairfield, Iowa, where a lot of, uh, okay. you know, where, where and, the, where the, yeah, where the, where the TM yeah. folks go. Yeah. And, and at some point, probably, you know, partly his own fault is <laughs> his life kind of fell apart and he, and he, and he left town and I think he left for the um, mountains of North Carolina. And then he either, I, I'd say he'd probably downloaded in a sense, that word again, downloaded these techniques to use as meditation techniques, which are in English or the first language of whoever's practicing and involve appreciation, gratitude, and love. They're almost like little prayer mantras. Uh, and, and so that was kind of, of different for me, very different. I was, I was used to, uh, using some mantra, but, uh, you know, not much and certainly never something like a short phrase in, in English, which, which when they were explaining the logic of it on, on the whiteboard, I thought, well, that's just ridiculous filler, you know, what you're saying. So, you know, and, and as I was doing this technique and thinking this thing, I was like, well, <laughs> you know, we'll give this a shot, but this is only one weekend of my life here, you, you know, this, this, and, uh, and what was wonderful was that that uh, it, it was it, it worked even though I completely disbelieved that the process would work. I just did it as they they told me, and I I, I found my my arm relaxing like uh, more relaxed than I I couldn't remember the last time it was that relaxed. Then like moved from my arm everywhere, and it's like what what in the world is going on? And then as soon as I thought what in the world, you know, from behind the thoughts, it was it was like I was introduced and plunged into this, the vast depth again, and the thoughts that I was thinking were just like little ripples, dozens of feet up on the surface of, of, of my consciousness. And boy, that was like, okay, there's something going on here. And, and I was, I had been searching almost for, I, again, it's kind of a musical analogy. Uh, my, in my early childhood and, and, you know, up, up until even the teen years, I, I was aware of certain pitch frequencies in a way that that would had this tendency of sort of bringing me into these sort of deeper states, um, and I couldn't make them come about. They would just come on their own. And when I was doing this practice, mm. it's like the whole orchestra turned up. And and mm. and it, where before I think I was touching partial pieces of an elephant, it felt like, my God, maybe this is the whole elephant. Whoa, what is going on here? And and it was just uh, I was just kind of being bathed in and out of this sort of uh, deep silent substrate. Coming in, coming out, uh, but uh, it was it was wild. It was wild for me. I, I, my all my training had been to uh, control my mind, and I, I actually got pretty good at that. And these people are telling me, "Don't try to control your mind." I was like, "Okay, this is good. I'll try to you know shift you know my, my practice here." And and they're saying like, "It doesn't matter if you're having thoughts. You know that the that you don't don't try to." Um, chain the monkey mind instead give it an ideal banana and they're telling me well these these techniques these weird sentences are are you know somehow pleasing to the mind and i, I, I yeah and so it's just a, this like a like a short mantra over and over yeah so yeah, yeah exactly mm-hmm. yeah 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 weird and so from my uh research here of your website it looks like you were involved with them from 2002 to 2008 and did you did you go around different places in the world yeah 
in that time with yeah, you? Yeah, I did. Where did you go? Where'd you go? Well, God, yeah, this is kind of funny. All the places that I wanted to go when I'd watched Travel Channel as a kid, not quite all of them, but um, I see I went all over the U.S. That that was that was fun just itself. But then I, I was sent over to Finland. I remember uh, saying, like, Ishtar, do you want to go to Finland? <laughs> and I said, when? In two weeks. It's like, okay, in, you know, all right. And um, th- that was the first place I went. I was there for three months until the border guard told me I was over. <laughs> I have to get kicked out of the Schengen area, which I, a, a structure I'd never heard of at that time. I was, you know, kind of ignorant. And and so then I went to Switzerland, which at the time was out of the Schengen area. And I was there for 40 uh, some days. And then I was, I was in Hong Kong, uh, which I fell in love with, uh, head over heels, unexpectedly in a sense. Uh, and and taught some classes there, and what was it about Hong Kong that you fell in love with? Because I, I tend to think of Hong Kong as highly developed capitalism, mm. lots of money, lots of exterior stuff. What was it about Hong Kong that attracted you? Oh well, I, I think I was given a, a very like a, a, a curated experience in some ways. Certainly, I certainly you know you can't miss all of that. What you just spoke about. But one, I, I wasn't living on, on the central island, which I think is, you know, some of the Hong Kong Island's most right. concentrated part of that. I was living in Kowloon. I was living mm. in this area called Mong Kok, which of course is very commercialized. But it, I felt like I was more in sort of a workaday Cantonese in, environment. And of and I was also there with a very dear friend of mine who had, um, she was from Hong Kong, born there in 1937. Uh, grew up running away from the Japanese army with her family in, in South China, coming back, re- trying to re- they try to rebuild their lives after the war. She becomes a nun at age 18 in 1955. Uh, fast forward, I, I meet her in 2004, I think. Uh, and we, we're fast friends, even though, you know, she's 67, and I'm, I'm 22, uh, you know, and she had already had an amazing life, amazing, amazing person. Uh, founded a couple girls' schools, so she was a, a wonderful doorway, we'll say, in, into Hong Kong. Like I, I couldn't have asked for a better friend to to show me all all the very spiritually oriented people who were there, which were many, right. and and also, yeah. uh, you know, also loved uh, food as much as me. Uh, so Ooh. so, and there were many great dim sum restaurants around us, and I and I also fell in love with with uh, Hong Kong dim sum. Uh, you know, quite quite hard, and and uh, you know, I just it was the first time I ever had culture shock in my life, which was wonderful. Uh, getting off mm. the bus straight into Mong um, Kok Kowloon at night with with all the uh, drippings from the air conditioners and the neon signs, and I thought, I'm in a Jackie Chan film. What in the world is going <laughs> on here? You know, and that that lasted for about, for about uh, three minutes, and then I was kind of like, okay, you know, we're, we're we're, we were normalized, and uh, yeah, this is wonderful. Then we, we took a trip to southern China uh, as, a, as a little meditation center together. There were three of us there. We went to this wonderful area called Guilin with the big undulating, undulating limestone hills. Uh, mm. and, yeah, beautiful area where the, you've got places where they have the bamboo boats and the cormorant fishermen and stuff like that. So, okay. yeah. So Finland, Switzerland, yeah. Hong Kong. Yeah. Anywhere else did you go? Oh, exotic Michigan, which which I <laughs> which I, I loved Michigan. Yeah, I, I was there for almost a year, and and it was such a wonderful time living in in uh, in in and around Grand Rapids, and uh, okay. one of my co monks 
Tripaudi, she had, um, uh, you know, just gotten like a new Saturn. It's an old, I don't think they make Saturn cars anymore, but this was a, a lovely little Saturn. And we drove that thing all over the Midwest and, and uh, uh, you know, to either teach classes or set them up or, or, or deliver books to metaphysical bookstores. And it was, you know, we had a grand time. Really? So what's, what is, uh, let's say, go back to the monastery. What is a day, what's an average day like if you're a monk in a monastery? Well, ours had a lot of different phases, I'd have to say. Depends on what we were doing. But, like, for instance, uh, we, we had a lot of businesses. And depending upon which one you're working at, the hours are going to be different. Um, I was in my most, my most happiest place was the restaurant which was which is where I got, which is where I started as a dishwasher and 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 was uh, proceeded to be trained in all the jobs until I was a chef. Now in my early days, I would only have to put in six hours of of work, and then it was sort of bookended by two hours of meditation in the morning, and then and then two hours of meditation in the evening. So usually I was getting between three and four hours of closed eyed meditation even on a work day, uh, in in our program. I, I would usually wake very early, just naturally. Uh, and do yoga asanas in the morning. And now there was a time when we had to get up at like six. And that was, that was actually, I was, I was not as good at getting everything in because sometimes we would have very late night meetings too. And we'd do a puja. Mm -hmm. We'd do sort of, um, uh, Sanskrit chanting for a little bit in a ceremony at night. And we'd do long, um, periods of group meditation because we usually had a big room, which, which had a lot of, um, uh, places to put couches and chairs and, and, and stuff like that. So, I guess with that extra meditation, sometimes you might be getting in five uh, to do right. normal. And, you know. Okay. okay, couches and chairs. So tell me, when you're meditating, how are you sitting in a chair? Are you sitting on, on a cushion? Are you on the floor cross-legged? Are you in full lotus? What do you do? Oh, God, you know, this this body, I was very close to full lotus a few times, but I can't say I've never I ever really met, got this body into mastering that. No, uh, one of the nice things about that practice was that um, uh, it, it doesn't require any special position. All it requires is being comfortable. And and so, yeah, all sorts, laying down on the ground. Sometimes I'd be in half lotus and, and sitting down and I enjoyed that. And lazy boy, sometimes a couch. So, yeah. Uh, so let's talk about half lotus, full lotus. You've obviously done a bit of that. Do you find that, you know, that just getting used to sitting cross-legged and the, let's say, discomfort that you experience while doing it is actually a spiritual practice, like sitting through the discomfort and not getting out of that position? Do you, do you find that's actually part of the whole thing? Well, I think it can be, but um, and, and that's certainly how I approached it, especially when I was, you know, trying to be Mister Ascetic. But in in the right. logic of this ascension practice, that you kind of throw that out the window for the most part, mm. and, and think of it as sort of like an unnecessary. Um, it's it's sort of unnecessarily slowing down the logic of that practice. I think in other practices it could be applied that way. So, okay, I have yeah. a question for you then. Um, I tend to, I, I tend to lean towards things that are easier rather than harder. Yeah, yeah. And right then, my mind was like, "Oh, good! I don't have to do that." 
I didn't have to do the thing. I could just, you know, do some sort of meditation sitting up. But then my next thought was like, no, 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 no. That's part of the process. You have to at least do that for a bit because I don't know. What do you What do you think? You I, think it's, it's? You know, I think that probably you know you have to do that for a little bit. That sentence right there. I think that is highly dependent upon a person's life script. I, I think in mm. my life script, the ascetic period was necessary. Not necessarily though as a pre uh, as a preparation period. I think that's that's just wrong. But just because I needed to do that, just because I had some right. deep itch that needed to be scratched in just that way. Uh, but, you know, there, there's other people that eh, I, I don't think it's it's required. I, I think actually meditation and, and, and experiencing states of higher consciousness are, are, sh- are so easy. If people knew how easy it would be, it would be shocking and it would be scary. Uh, mm. You know, to, to actually, I think that's the ease that most people have the difficulty with. And and that and that that is that that is a thing, uh, that that is it's it's far more difficult than difficulty itself is, uh, for people as ease. Wow. Okay. Um, okay. So I'm up to 2008 here with that particular monastery. What happens after 2008? Where do you go then? Oh God. Yeah. Well, um, it was it was actually in 2007 that I was in Michigan. I was having a great time. I was having all these experiences where I was sort of in everything again and i was only sleeping like 3 hours at night and i was just jazzed up on bliss and and i was walking one night at like 2 in the morning by the cemetery cuz i used to like to try to help any stray ghosts that might be around go and i was I was walking home and out of my heart comes the same vo- the same voice that basically told me to go to this place in oregon was saying hey get yourself fired and I was like, "Oh no!" And I could, I could. It was shockingly true. I, I knew it was a kind of new. It was a true voice it was saying, "You, you need to get yourself fired. You just get your get yourself kicked out of the ashram." And and I realized why. And I knew, I that was one of the, that was a limitation I still had, which is why I was I didn't want to hear that message. It was, I was I was using my connection to a group, uh, to an organization, to teachers that I thought the world of. It, it was a security blanket in a way. Mm. And, and that security blanket, I guess something in me was like, that security blanket is starting to limit, limit the, the growth. That's probably, you know, if it, were, if it had a logic, that's what it would be. And, and I kind of knew that and I, I ignored it. I just, I just said, no, things are going so well. Why change now? Why rock the boat here? And, and so I, I put it down. And then really from that point to, you know, fast forward the next year of, like latter 2007 to 2008 was just sort of a, <laughs> a at first slowly devolving spiraling down the drain more more or less and 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 it's like a lot of the synchronicity and the magic had sort of flipped 180 and i was having one all sorts of uh, uh murphy's law days uh which mm, hadn't happened in okay. such a long time and and i got to a point i had made myself earlier a pact that i said if i ever become a malcontent and um and I can't shift out of it. And every day isn't just joy in this thing. And I can't and I and I, I can't shift out of that in a reasonable amount of time. Then you have to go. And so I, I came to that realization of the earlier promise was being lived. And it's like, oh, I gotta go then. I made this deal. You know, I I set that as as my uh, parameter. So then I as soon as I decided that I had to go and I and I told people about it, the synchronicities came back. It's kind of like that. Mm-hmm. I needed to I needed to sell my gardening business, for instance, I, I found a buyer without putting it out on Craigslist or anything uh, in like a day. 
I was like, I, it just came to my head who to talk to. It's like, ask Carla, you know, her Carla's boyfriend might want to buy it. So I went, she said, Oh my God, that's what my boyfriend's been looking for. And I just, you know, sold my uh, business to them, you know, rather, rather quickly gave them my clients. Uh, and, you know, I had a strange, I had had a strange desire to be paid for something in gold coins which I'd forgotten about. It was just this funny little thing. They said, like, would it be okay if I paid you in gold coins? And I was like, what? Okay, sure. Unfortunately, I had to I had to liquidate them because they needed the cash. It would have been better if I could have held on to those because their value went up quite quite right. a bit over the next few years. Um, but but yeah, that stuff like that started happening and it was it was wild again. And and so that and then I left and of uh, more suffering came down the pipes. I was asked not to teach the practice anymore now that I was leaving the ashram. That was a very common thing. And, and I, I, you know, I said yes. I didn't have a, my fingers crossed behind my, my back or, or anything like that. But I, I thought, well, okay, sure. Or they asked me to turn in my teaching manual or something like that. So, so you know, I went out and I, and I had this, you know, a lot of... Um, I had a bliss battery. I, I went to move to Portland, which was two and a half hours away from where I was living. I spent. I went to spend time with my my dear sister, uh, which was great. Uh, I was trying to figure out what to do next. I end, I ended up going to university, which was which was almost an odd fit. And I decided I got to go to. I, I think I read that you got a degree in what? Oh, I got a degree. Ultimately, I got a, a major in philosophy and a minor in economics. And. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, I went to. I, I picked philosophy because I thought it would be more. Uh, it would be more difficult than history, and I wanted to do something that was difficult, and I, I wanted to sort of challenge my uh, critical thinking skills and and hone them, which which I'm glad that I did, even though it was kind of soulless um, Western analytic <laughs> philosophy. Mm. <laughs> Uh, you know, it was good. It was that was not my that was really not my camp naturally, but it was good that I, 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 uh, I went there. So uh, I, I was in school for like uh, five years, I think it turned because I didn't know what I wanted to quite do, and I, I thought I always thought I was going to transfer out, but it became very difficult to transfer. Uh, in two thousand nine, everyone was staying in their in their in their schools, so I never quite transferred out. And uh, over time, I, I also decided to run an experiment and stop meditating. And, and I, was, I was curious, was I fooling myself with all those experiences that I had before? Was I just a young guy who was prone to, you know, wonderful uh, experiences? I, and so I said, okay, I'll stop meditating. And I will not tell anybody much about any of the spiritual dimensions of my life. And uh, I also learned how uncurious most people uh, <laughs> where I'm always asking people about their lives and trying to get to know one. No one, no one, you know, seemed to have any bloodhound sense of, of of any of that stuff with me unless I gave them some some clues. So that that was an incidental sort of discovery uh, on that on that experiment. But you know, my my bliss battery sort of wore down over mm. over a few years, and I I experienced suffering and depression for the first time in years, and and, and it was much worse. Because I'm glad I did that. This is also the regret. One of the regret question answers that I have. I'm. I'm I, I partly regret. Okay, yeah. Well, yeah, let's, yeah. let me let me read that question yeah. out. See if you can answer it now. So the question is, and I've got them written here somewhere. Let me find this. Do you have any regrets you'd be willing to share, and what did you learn from it? 
Oh yeah. Actually, this this question was hard because I could come up with a bunch of little things. Um, <laughs> um, no, I mean, I'm interested in the one you're talking about, though. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know. Thinking something in my mind. That was well. You know, I didn't need to do that. I don't. You know, I I I didn't. I, I regret that I didn't become more of a rebel against my old spiritual organization sooner. That that's a regret. I didn't have to inflict that um, suffering on my nervous system that I did. It would have been better for me to, to um, you know, I had a lot of deference, and I was deeply grateful for all that I was given um, by this organization. My it was like a spiritual family, and the teachers. And I, I didn't leave because I necessarily had problems with people per se. Yes, I was arguing with people all the time by the end and saying, like, this is groupthink, you know, but I didn't have any, like, uh, hard feelings. Uh, and so, yeah, I didn't, I, didn't need to, um, I didn't need to make myself small. I didn't need to uh, – I, I went too long sort of uh, uh, with the deference. So, so yeah, that, that's a big one because, I, I, you know, I can kind of felt the toll – in my nervous system, that the, the suffering that I sort of put myself through in those university years was, you know, I just feel it more intensely than, than when you're growing up and you don't know any difference because my body knew the difference. My body knew what it was like to, to not have any internal splits, to not have any self-recriminating thoughts, to, to be bathed in silence for most of the time and then to, you know, kind of go back to the old way of functioning was very hard. So that that's certainly mm. that's certainly a regret, uh, but also not because I and think that, it had to happen. And that was when you stopped meditating. Is what yeah, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, more than that, I'd say uh, I also was just, in some ways, actively, of, uh, of, uh, actively shutting down, in a way, uh, actively not expressing. It turns out that it's probably important for this for a guy like me to to let the songs of the soul flow through them. And, mm. and, and, and I kind of, I put a, put a sort of a cork in that. And yeah, when you do that and you're, and you're sort of meant to be a songbird in, of a, in a sense, man, that gets backed up. And that's, that's, that's not, that's a lot of pressure and anger and, and frustration that, that just builds up. So, you know, by the, by the end of university, I was, you know, I could have, you know, getting it, been getting into some fights with some people if I was that, if I was disposed. Yeah. Right. Um, okay, so why don't you explain exactly what it is you do now? That's a really good question. <laughs> well, well, one of the questions that you chose was, <laughs> and this is I have this with every of my all of my podcast guests, is what's the worst advice given in your profession? But normally, before we ask that question, we have to figure out. What exactly is your profession? Because most people I have on the podcast are a little like you to where it's yeah. not doctor, lawyer, plumber. It's not right. a easily quantifiable thing. What what are you? I think I actually am pretty easily quantifiable. I was just joking. My my main vocation is <laughs> is is a meditation teacher. I, I mean that in, okay. internally that is that is sort of the the, the center. I, I have things added to that. Like um, I probably work much more as an intuitive astrologer. Than I do as a meditation teacher, and I enjoy that work immensely. Uh, mm. And and so you know, one one work the meditation teachers. So I, I like giving people, like teaching people how to fish. That that's very satisfying for me. So 
I, I, I enjoy teaching people how to do various mantra meditations, the ascension meditation foremost, I'd say, and then having it so that they're, they're really wonderful, self-sufficient meditators, and they have, a, they have a tool they can use for the rest of their lives. Uh, and that, that's, that just brings me a lot of joy doing that. And I, I love, also love working with people who, who actually want to maybe go, go to retreats. I, I like hosting retreats as well, which is sort of like more of an immersive, almost a mini monastery uh, for, for a week or two or three or sometimes more. And, and I love sort of being, it's almost like being a trip sitter in the psychedelic community in a way because mm, I've, I've yep. been through, and in very similar spaces, I do have to say I agree with that because uh, I've also done psychedelics. Uh, and so I enjoy sort of being uh, sort of a gentle field guide, sort of, sort of like a river guide to, to the whole process of very deep immersive meditation that, that the states that people get into when they're, even when they sit for just like three or four days straight of eight to 10 hours a day of meditation. Uh, I, I enjoy being in that space and I enjoy helping, helping people uh, navigate that. So that that's, that's, yeah. And the other work, the astrology work, is something I wasn't expecting to come to, but looking back, I realized, oh, that's so obvious that you're cut out for that. Uh, and in some ways, I think I'm kind of, <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of following a little bit in my mother's footsteps uh, in a way with that, but it, it, it's different. Uh, for me, it's, I like to, I, I do, like, like Jung, I, I do believe that actually we're all sort of unique snowflakes in a way, that, that we, we're all kind of like the, these, these, that there's a joy in allowing sort of the, the groove that you are, the song that you are to sing itself in, in the most unencumbered way. Uh, that, that's, that's my sense. I, uh, and so that's, that's my um, astrological practice is mainly I'm singing people's soul songs back to them. That, that's mm. how I think of it. I see the birth chart as a, as a piece of music and I feel people are musical. So uh, I'm, I'm singing the song of the psyche or the song of the soul and, and we're having an interaction with that. And, and I, I love it when people uh, reflect and say, like, um, oh, my God, it's like, I, I actually feel like I did when I was five now. Mm -hmm. I remember what it felt like when I was five or six or seven before, or whenever, uh, you know, before I'd, I'd gotten so confused. Uh, and that, that's, that's the, like the highest, one of the highest satisfactions for that line of work. So they're complementary in a way uh, because uh, to achieve, I think, to, for most of us, to practically achieve that sort of unencumbered, or as Jung, uh, uh, Jung would say, individuated uh, state, to to achieve that, we we usually need to need to kind of learn how to relax our and heal our nervous system, uh, mm. and, and and sort of you know do engage in something uh, that that sort of hits the factory reset button. I mean, usually for most of us, it doesn't just happen like that. You know, or if it does happen like that, it's predicated upon an awful lot of like, like, like easing up, like people like open trying to open a pickle jar. You know, it's not the just the last person. It's usually some. Right. Uh, you you loosened it for me. Yes, there's a lot of loosening that has to happen. So, 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 yeah, yeah. So that that's how those two kind of um, uh, interact together. Uh, I, I had other professions in this life which I loved. I loved being a professional gardener. Um, I loved being a um, house remodeler, uh, and I've, I've been a writer as well. And, and so uh, sometimes I'd, I'd have all five professions going at once. Um, 
a few times in the same day. Lots of costume changes, and and somehow that that always, I, I always enjoyed wearing wearing many hats at the same time. Wow, I love the uh, intuitive astrologer part because one of uh, my previous podcast guests is an intuitive astrologer. She used to live in Santa Cruz, California. She now lives in Seattle, um, and probably one of my listeners' favorite podcast guests. Mm. Is this intuitive astrologer Denise Byron is her name, and mm. she is uh, she's something else. Uh, okay, so we're going to ask you this question. We're trying to we're trying to quantify your occupation. So, what this question that you chose here? What's the worst advice given in your profession? First, quantify one profession, and then tell us about the worst advice given in it. Um, in in meditation, typically the worst advice given is. Uh, you have to you have to uh, control your mind. I, I I find that that's that's the the worst advice given. Uh, second to that is don't do anything. <laughs> to some people, that's also the worst advice given. Uh, and I'm kind of you know what what I mean by that is there's there's some uh, people in contemporary spirituality who say it's it's engaging in the spiritual search itself, which is which is uh, a, a universal. Uh, uh, universally encumbering thing, and I think that's that that notion is ridiculous. Actually, uh, it, it's it, it'll be true for some people, but universally, no. Uh, I'm glad that nobody told me not to meditate, for instance, because it, you know uh, it, when I was a teenager, because it was such a wonderful thing to uh, to engage in as a as a steady practice. Uh, as an astrologer, <laughs> oh God, I don't even know how to how to say what the worst thing in that profession would, would be. I think it would usually be tell, you know looking at somebody's chart um, and and saying you know well you got this here or this here you're screwed you know something like that. I think that that would be one of, one of one of the worst things you could say in a session to somebody because simply quote well, it's not true and that that's bad astrology or, or whatever. Right. So. You know, your, your moon, your yeah, moon, no, your I'm, moon's in Capricorn. I'm sorry, your SOL here. Nothing we right, can do about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, now, my experiences with Denise, the intuitive astrologer, uh, the few sessions I've had with her, it's mm. it's almost. I wouldn't. Uh, yeah, I was going to say it's almost all, all positive. You know, it's not. Oh yeah, this. But but she did actually, in. Pro, what was it? It was probably be two, early 2019. I had a session with Denise and she was saying, she said, this is not your chart. This is everybody's chart, but there's, there's going to be something big happen around the 20th of January 2020. And she said it's kind of world changing. Um, and it's not bad but it's that it's, it's a big thing that's kind of world changing that turned yeah. out to be the day that that uh, we uh figured out we had coronavirus yeah yeah and i um, actually i should report that that, that is not, she is not um alone in our profession in in going there now not everyone pegged uh january 20th specifically but they'd be an orb around that date uh, yeah they, they were people were getting tuned in uh not everyone mm. picked a pandemic of uh, other people were picking other other sort of thematic outputs, uh, and, and, and a lot of it had to do with looking at a Pluto-Saturn conjunction, which was uh, strong at the time. And and mm. so a couple people that I knew mentioned pandemic, a possible pandemic in their in their lists, but of course they you know they didn't know. So 
Yeah. Yeah, Denise didn't get specific. She yeah. said it's just something that is going to affect the whole world. Yeah. You know, so it's so it's not like a you know, it's not like a uh, an earthquake in California or right. you know. Yeah, it's great. You know, or, or you know, or a um you know, a coup in some South American country or something. Right. It's like it's this is going to be a global yes. global thing and the thing about when she told me that, you know, I'm not my wife's the warrior in the family. I didn't wake up every morning with this feeling of dread like Jane. I totally forgot about it. <laughs> you know, I totally forgot that she'd actually said that. You know, maybe she didn't say January twentieth. She said later in January. But um yeah, so yeah, yeah it's so brilliant. I've got a, I've got a brilliant. soft spot for the intuitive I got a soft spot for the intuitive astrologers. I might finish Asking you these questions here. Uh, most worthwhile thing you've put your time into, something that changed the course of your life. We've probably discussed this. Yeah, we, we're going anyway. to bore the listeners. are going to turn off. Like, let's go say something different than meditate for years. No, no, probably not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Def, definitely, definitely what, that. <laughs> definitely that, yeah. What quality do you admire in people? Oh, yeah. Enthusiasm. Oh yeah, you chose this. I did. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, but I, I I chose it. But then my answer keeps keeps changing because there's so many that that are a top top drawer for me when I when I meet people. But I have to say, innocence, um, sort of uh, innocence, retaining innocence. You know, past childhood. When when I when I meet people who who still have that innocence and they've got their feet on the ground at the same time. You know, they're they're not ostriches. They're not ignoring. They're not bypassing. But they're still. They, they they still have their heart open. That to me is a profound strength of character, a strength of soul. Somebody who's been able to keep their heart open and keep their mind open, and and not shut down despite all the the uh, the pain there is in life. And and so I love that. I love enthusiasm. I'm, I'm right there with uh, Emerson, who was who was a big uh, uh, fan of enthusiasm, and and I I, lo- I love to see an alive heart. Yeah, you know, very, very, you know, same, same line. Um, hum- humility as well. It's, it's uh, not fake humility, you know, uh, but, but just like, wow. When I, when I see total, um, it's, it's sort of like a, like a, like a looseness and a lightness and, and like, that's, that's beautiful. You know, in the middle of that, you were talking about, they've got this, but they haven't lost that, you know, you're yeah. talking about that that middle ground and the thing that I, I don't know if I do, I suppose I, I could say I struggle with it. I struggle with the, the idea of it is on this spiritual path, when you become aware of all these other, you know, dimensions and things, and it's almost like I tend to want to either, how do you, how do you live in this, in this reality, knowing there's the those other ones, you know what I mean. You know, that's try to stay in the middle. Like, look after this body, uh, even though you know your soul kind of keeps going on. I don't know. That's that's a, for, for, yeah, that's a like conversation that's, that's, that rattles around in my head from time to time. I, I like that conversation. It's a good one. Um, f- for me, the answer maybe is maybe is potentially naively simple, uh, but but for me, they're they're, they're um, all all the different maybe strata of existence, put it that I've I've wandered into. It all just feels like a continuum to me. 
I mean, I think there were points at which there there might have been a sense of of more distinctness, or or going from one to one might have been jarring, and I kind of can kind of remember that for, for a very long time. It's just more like an easeful sort of like you're turning the dial, and mm-hmm. and and kind of you know modulating a, a little bit, and and so yeah, what I mean is by that is like like ghosts. Um, I actually don't want to be a medium. <laughs> That's not my thing. I didn't want that as a child, but that still happens. It still happens now and then. And, and, and it's, it's it, when I was like, you know, when I was six or seven, yeah, it rattled my nervous system. I have to say, uh, to be woken up and having somebody like standing five feet from my bed, you know, that, that was mm. not like fun. That was not enjoyable often for me. And I, and I kind of had to sort of figure out how to deal with that. Um, now, now it's much easier. Now it's like there's the sense of being sort of connected to the source of of everything in a way, and and mm-hmm. so that yeah. that that connection seems to smooth out a lot of the rough edges of a lot of those experiences in general, make them less less jarring. Like with some spirits, it, 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 it's been like, oh yeah, you did what? This was in the most haunted hotel room in Paris I'd ever been in in this life i was like oh my god you know my wife and i were both it felt like i was walking through five people every every square foot and i was like oh you know it's like okay i'm not i'm not a medium in fact i'm a i'm more of a monk but i'm crazy when i'm asleep in my astral body i will chase you so just let me get some disease here we're going to respect each other we're all going to be good with each other and i'm sorry that i'm i'm not a great medium i really am it's just i don't have interest in that in this life, so you know, so it's it's almost like like talking to somebody uh, in a, in a normal way at this point. Do you find that in like a city like say Paris, that's quite an old city, so a lot of people have lived there at one point in time and obviously died there too? Do you feel like there's more of that sort of activity in places like like that? Yeah, it's so far. I wouldn't necessarily make it make it a rule. Um, but that that is the trend so thus far, uh, and uh, I actually I'm going to be very woo woo right now and make a strange statement. I'll say like I think that the uh, the astral uh, uh, the sort of the dimension that that a spirit maybe lives on uh, the astral planes of this world are extremely dirty because I don't think our funeral rites uh, work for anything, no. or, or I don't I don't think we we have. Previous previous cultures had spent more energy in preparing themselves for death than we do, and I think our preparations that we go through are feeble, uh, for the most part, ineffective, uh, and and so I, I think there there are actually a lot of uh, discarnates walking around, and I also think that in general there's a dirtiness because we we don't know how to um, we don't know how to sort of easefully dissipate psychic impressions of traumatic events as well because there's also a lot of hauntings which are merely sort of like the stone tape theory there's a there's a memory playing in this environment it's not an actual discarnate those things can be dealt with too and i think previous cultures knew how to deal do space clearing and deal with those and sort of set the past to rest we do not do that we've if we've got it some parts of paris or, or london or, or some of these other european cities especially mm-hmm. that i've been in yeah. uh it's like oh Okay, yeah, I'm, you know, the, the Catholics didn't know how to do that, you know. Or right, you're, talking, you're basically talking about Western culture. Western culture, mainly. At this yes. Point. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, India, like, too, though, that... I have to say, in, in India, oh, really? good Lord. Good mm. Lord. Oh, God, yeah, yeah, I had to get a friend to help out in Tiruvannamalai uh, with, with some of the spirits. I think some people were afraid that they were going to be um, 
uh, reincarnated into some sort of lesser state of existence, and therefore we're we're not wanting to uh, budge. And and that was that was that was lit up. So you know, I think I think it crosses sort of the dirtiness of the astrals can uh, cross some divides. But that that was just a you know one off experience in uh, the only town in South India that I was living in. How long have you spent in India? Oh, not long. Six months, just last year. And that was my that was my oh, first really? time. Just yeah. recently. Yeah, just recently. I I'd, I'd, I'd always wanted to go, but it never felt quite like. It was the time until last year there was go to India, you know, do it now. So, And what did you do in India? Well, I had some young meditation students who were very keen uh, to do a very long retreat, uh, a, a five-month retreat that, that I, you know, talked about that I did back in 2003, 2004, and they wanted to do it with me. And so uh, we, we basically, I rented a house and... And uh, I had a little group there in in the beautiful little pilgrimage town of uh, Tiruvannamalai, which which is was made uh, famous recently by by uh, the the sage Ramana Maharshi uh, taking residence uh, on on the sacred at the base of the sacred mountain Arunachala. So we were we were more a group of mantra meditators in a in a in a self inquiry town in, in a way, and that was that was lovely. Uh, five months of of meditation, and then I basically had uh, just about a month after that uh, to sort of travel around North India before uh, before heading heading to North America. Mm, what were your impressions of India? Oh God, I I, I miss it. Uh, mixed impressions, like like any place. Like um, uh, that was the second time I had culture shock. Uh, I was bleary eyed. I didn't get any sleep on my flights uh, over. Uh, I'm I'm on. Now I'm at the end of a four and a half hour drive from Chennai, uh, you know, to this town. <laughs> I'm looking out the window, and I thought it was sort of an interesting welcome to India moment. This is the only time I saw it in my time. There, there was a fellow who was standing on a on a rubble pile, and he was uh, pooping uh, with with butt towards uh, the street. So I was kind of like looking over, and I, and I just started laughing internally. I was like. Oh dear, oh dear! I hope I'm taking this group. Of, I hope I didn't make you know. I'm not taking my group of meditators to a place that's not conducive for their for their practice or something like that. Because you know, I was tired, and then you know that then I got over that. Was he was he like a dog? Was he like looking at you in the eye while he was doing? It? No, no. I didn't you, know see do- face. you know how dogs will poop and then they <laughs> look you in the eye while yeah. They're no, it wasn't like that. I was just it was just it just happened to catch the catch catch a funny moment and. Uh, and uh, I think I think in, I, some of my Western sensitivities, which actually were, were had been eroded in other ways uh, beforehand, you know, kind of came up. I saw like you know, that our neighborhood had a lot of you know, of course, garbage and, and rubble and stuff like that that you mm-hmm. that you expect and when you're there. But I had to get used, kind of get used to that, and I had to get used to of not, you know, a, a more extreme case of Portuguese countryside as far as how slow and inefficient and un- unreliable a lot of um, areas of life are, uh, say, in comparison to Germany, you know, or, or North America, right. someplace yeah. like that. Uh, yeah. So, so yeah, especially because I was also having to organize the fixing of the house on the fly as we went. None of the uh, electrical plugs had been grounded, so people were getting terrible shocks t- touching the hot water boiler or the or the refrigerator. So, uh, you know, I basically fixed my landlord's, uh, you know, many aspects of my landlord's poorly 
uh, built house uh, as as we went, and and you know, it does little things. But it, it, I loved I loved being there. I had and our at our initial, I had such a sense of of presence of silence of in the area. It was thick; you could cut it with butter. You know, so mm-hmm. there was there was the presence and silence that you could cut with butter, and on top of that was chaos uh, on the top. And you know, some people were genuinely aware of the presence of silence. Some people weren't. Uh, it didn't, you know, it didn't really matter. But it was an interesting juxtaposition. It, it to me, it really did uh, feel as if um, uh, it would often. I would often feel these large waves uh, actually coming off the sacred mountain. Now, whether the mountain is objectively sacred or it's kind of like an egregore, uh, which is something uh, you know that that sort of you know taken on people's. Uh, feelings about it for that giving it off i don't know uh, all i all i could say is doing yoga on our rooftop with a view of this big mountain right there just hit me with blasts and, and going to the ramana ashram at early in the morning for the vedic chanting and going and meditating in some of the meditation halls had a very similar similar effect so uh just i love actually love going to pilgrimage towns it's something that i enjoy doing uh and and so to you know to me Arunachala is a, is a profound, is as profound or in some ways more than places like Glastonbury or Mount Shasta, which, which are sort of my two other famous favorite places, or Santiago de Compostela. Mm. There's also wonderful energy there uh, um, in Spain. So, uh, wonderful. In that, you mentioned, you're talking about India and you were saying it's, it's even more kind of remote than. Portugal, and the reason you mentioned Portugal because you currently live in mm. Portugal. So you live in a what do you live in a small rural town? Is that what you yeah, mean? we live outside the small rural town. Mm, even better, <laughs> even better, even better. Yeah, yeah. We, we've got a long, poorly maintained uh, dirt and rock road to to uh, get to our house from from the main road in our small town. Yeah, we we live in a town that probably peaked uh, in the 16th and in the 19th centuries. You know, I think it had two peaks, and and beautiful. Uh, surrounded by very ancient olive trees. I don't know exactly know how old mm. some of them are, but I can only guess by the thickness of the trunk, the original trunk, and how many how many new trees are kind of coming out of them. Uh, I was actually in the garden. Here's a psychic story. Maybe this would be entertaining. I was I was in the garden one time, just on my hands and knees, you know, preparing some ground uh, for for planting. I looked up. I just had the sense I had to look up, and and about twenty feet from me, and and outside the little fence in the same yard, I, I saw um, two columns so, you know, of, of soldiers in Iron Age um, gear. Mm. And I looked at them, I was like, I don't think they're Romans. Like, are they Carthaginians? Uh, you know, I didn't know who, who I was looking. And then and they, I, I watched their column move for one, one thousand, two, about four seconds. And then they disappeared into like a mist, poof, gone. So, I um, just by happenstance, I, I was talking to my uh, my wonderful Italian permaculture landlord uh, up the hill. We rent we rent this little house from him, and and he was saying, oh, star, you know, it's it's like, uh, yes, have you been to the little uh, chapel up on the mountain?" As like, no, I haven't been to that little chapel. He's like, "If you go in the little chapel when they open." Uh, there's a scene of elephants and Hannibal's army in the chapel. It's like, mm. oh, wow, really? It's like, he said, local legend says that a, that they came through here on their way to Lisbon. This was before they went to, uh, you know, kind of go attack the 
Romans and the Italian peninsula. They were recruiting, basically trying to get people to come with them. And it's like, okay, that's, that's, and then I looked up the history and I saw that that was very plausible, the, the, the route. So it's, it's an ancient land here. Uh, it's, it's, it's got echoes in it. Uh, and, mm. and they, they, you know, no, people really have not, I think this has been olive trees for a very long time. And, and, and the, we're also surrounded by large, large savannas or kind of half forests of, of cork trees. So the original oak tree, the Quercus, uh, and, and so they're, they're everywhere. And then it's, it's lovely to hear the, the bells of the sheep and, and the bells of the cows as they graze under these, these trees. This is the way they've been doing things for probably 20,000 years. Uh, we also have a, an extremely old stone circle, which, um, used to be the largest stone circle in the Iberian Peninsula, uh, about 25 kilometers, uh, from our house. And, and if you drive on the old country road um, to the next town over, there, there are just dolmens and menhirs. Uh, you, you could kind of see them in farmers' fields. They don't, they don't care mm. about uh, archaeology as much as, say, uh, uh, British folks do, uh, who, who like to sort of preserve the sites and you know, put up really cool history uh, placards for, for all to read that this stone circle wasn't discovered until 1965 by accident. Uh, so they're 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 everywhere. Have you the the big stone circle you said that's twenty twenty five yeah. k's away or something rather? Yeah, you've been there. Oh yeah, yeah. And and what do you do? You get like a, a sense? Do you get an energy off of that? What do you what do you feel there? I that one I don't I, the circle itself I didn't get as much feeling off of that one as others. But the um the men here i think men here is the right term yeah the the singular stone that's that's in alignment with that circle and it's about um uh, a kilometer as the crow flies from it my goodness yes i felt that it felt like i was next to some sort of energy tower uh, really? uh and and there are a few of the stones when i touched them i have i do have to there are a few of the stones in the circle individual ones that when i when i touched them you know i was kind of you know sent somewhere and uh, uh, it's, it's I just I compare it to other sites I've been to in the world that I've had more profound effects with personally, uh, like like Avebury in in um, in Southwest England. My goodness, that for me that was. And there was this I don't even know the name of that. I was I was in West Cork, Ireland, and and I went to this one particular site. And it, was, it felt like it was turned on, like it was some kind of electrical generator. I I, I, really? I walked walked in the circle. I felt as if I I moved palpably through some sort of phase shift in a very physical, palpable way, like like we would expect in a fantasy movie, and and mm-hmm. that was that was uh, kind of extraordinary, uh, and you know, similar interesting feelings at Newgrange, uh, when I when I got uh, the the in the Boyne Valley, north of Dublin, when I when I got into mm. the center of that giant passage, they call it the passage grave. I'm not quite sure it was for burial purposes originally. Uh, it, it felt like a place for shamanic initiation to me. I wanted to stay in there, and I wanted to go in a cubbyhole and meditate for three days. So, when you feel like any of those places, you feel like when you talk about that one stone, and you said, and you touched it, and you kind of shrunk mm. back. Does does that? Uh, what's my question here? Does that scare you at all? That energy? No, not that one. No, no, that that doesn't. Um, no. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I guess I'm, I'm used to it. It's a pleasant, it's a pleasant, uh, uh, mm, for me, okay. almost like, like too much pleasure in a, in a way. Mm, you kind of okay. have to wipe the hand yep. off. 
Yeah. Okay. Um, and I think there's one more question here that we haven't answered. Was what's? And I just asked you about that. That scare you. Uh, the question is, what's your relationship like with fear? Mm-hmm. I I kind of like it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that could have been in a movie right there. <laughs> Not just what you said, but the way you said it. Oh okay. Tell me more. <coughs> well, I, I like it because, my God, for most of much of my life, it's like, you know, what President Roosevelt said was true. You know, it's like, uh, you know, fear itself, you know, it's, it's, and, mm-hmm. and, and it, it bothered me so much. You know, it was one of those one of those things I just ran from. You know, just not not even not even the situation. So I, I don't know. At some point, of it, it almost it's like embarrassment. I hated embarrassment. Like embarrassment was one of the feelings that I loathed even more than fear, uh, the most. And at some point, I I started to actually kind of enjoy it when it would come around, because uh, not much was embarrassing. But like, oh, what an interesting sensation in the nervous. Fear is the same. And and I remember a. Um, if I go back, sort of the mid-journey, uh, one of my spiritual teachers, uh, she said to me, uh, like, I just kind of out of the blue, she said, Ishtar, isn't it interesting that um, fear and excitement, in a certain sense, are just that subtle shift away from each other? And I was like, yeah, in fact, that is how I'm experiencing. Thank you. Thank you for telling me that. Yeah, that is interesting, you know. Mm-hmm. And and you know, especially after she said that, it was kind of like, boom, just kind of, um, you know, accentuating something that was developing already and opening it up. And, you know, there are still, I like, there are still some moments where I think I, I generally get caught up, you know, uh, in something, but not that many. And they're not so bad anymore. I, I kind of like, it's very interesting. I'm very curious about it, you know, cause I used to run. Now I can let things, things just kind of flow through the body. And, and, and I fear often, you know, if a certain kind has a lot to tell us too, you know, oftentimes it's an interesting alarm system from the body, you know, so so it's good not to run from it. And if you're able to just kind of heed it and stay with it and say, like, once I once I get it down, it's like, oh, there's some interesting insights in there. It's kind of like, thank mm. you for telling me that. It's like somebody from a different department of the psyche is sending up a message, you know, and then a missive. It's like, oh, I would not have been paying attention to that if you hadn't... Uh, you know, turn, turn that on. So brought that yeah. to my attention. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, you yeah. mentioned, you mentioned bar- embarrassment. Was that what you meant? Oh, yes. God, I hated that. Yeah. So I had a question for you. You know, when you're in high school, you got this, when you're in high school, you're in your teenage years and, you know, it's the, probably the, t- the, the time in your life where you are probably more concerned about what other people <sighs> think about you than in the other time in your life. How was that? Were you the weird kid? Like with this, all this whole sounds like you're a good student, and with all this, I'm a I'm a teenage monk in high school. <laughs> was there a lot? Was there a lot of like embarrassment and shame about things then, like from other uh, kids? Not at teen monk stage. In fact, that that almost made me immunized to it. Uh, you know, because mm, yeah, the stakes yeah. for me were so intense that you know, dragging my own ass into a cold shower at three a.m. was that's the worst thing most people were doing to me in a day. So these were these right. were, these are self inflicted. It's like you know, people were you know not not bothering. And I was also, I think, given permission to be sort of a weird kid. And and early on, it was was difficult. And it certainly became of uh, sort of I think an overemphasized um, area of e- egoic 
identification. You know, it's like class clown. You know, I got to be the smart kid and the class clown. So try to combine mm-hmm. those uh, two things. And, yeah, the embarrassment really wasn't linked so much to my weirdness. It usually be, would be, it would have been linked to some kind of deep feeling that I was afraid to be seen by, by someone. Mm-hmm. And there were definitely some of those around. Like, like especially if somebody uh, mocked me for how much I cared about something. I think about looking back, I think, you know, and, and, and thought that, oh, that's like, that's effeminate to have compassion or something like mm-hmm. that. You know, it's like when you're mm-hmm. eight, no yeah, one was saying, using those words exactly. Uh, right. You, you know, like, like, like those sorts of things uh, were, were, were sort of much touchier buttons uh, way back when. Uh, you know, having, having messy hair and uh, doing accents and being kind of weird. That, that, that uh, I, I really couldn't get mocked for that, and it, w- it w- wasn't sticky for me. I kind of enjoyed that. Well, a lot of times the class clown is actually, they're the class clown because they're covering up insecurities. Do you feel like you were the oh. class clown for that reason? Maybe. Yeah, maybe. I think I was also just funny. <laughs> and I and, and uh, I, I I loved Monty Python immensely, and Jim Carrey immensely, and anybody who could do really? impersonations immensely. And I think there was a, a naturalistic element of that. Like if I would have to cast my my life as a movie or as a type of movie, I would have never gone with drama. It was always going to be a comedy at at, at base. It always felt like You'd a be comedy. Be in a Monty Python movie. I will. I would have wanted to. I said, like Terry Gilliam, sign me up, man. You know, get I, right. you know, get me into something here. You, you know, or Michael. You have a pair of coconuts and be. I would have done. I, I would have done whatever. I would have done whatever, or, or to or to be uh, in proximity to Peter Sellers, peak Peter Sellers when he was working. I would have. I would have. I would have loved. You know, sort of throwbacks before my my period. Uh, right. But, um, yeah, I think I think it was to de- for me to deal with pain. Mm. Uh, if if mm. there was some some way like that on, on that. Line. It was just like I, I went to school when I was a little kid in my nuclear family. I almost still had a sense of being one with everything. I didn't know that I had that sense when I went to school mm-hmm. and and experienced other children sort of in mass. Uh, and it was it was shocking, and and I, I did actually feel that many of the children were rather quite cruel. By my standards, and my family, I think in some ways was sort of moralistic, but kind of in a good way. You know, we had high standards of, of behavior, and and high standards of, of sort of, uh, you know, maintaining having a good worldview, you know, and, and being kind, and and so I don't think that was going on so much. You know, that was actually right, one of the things that made cool. me sort of believe in reincarnation. Was I was there with a bunch of other seven year olds. I'm going like, how did this develop so quickly in these other in my peers here? <laughs> Is this really because because <laughs> their parents are awful, or is there more? You, you know, is there some influence coming from, uh, you, you know, that that's that's innate coming in from some other place? It's it's just like I, I thought I thought I saw the kids as, as sort of like often cruel adults, per, temporarily stuck in a powerless body, and, I, mm. and so that was that was rough. So I think I had to develop the the humor just to deal with that, you know, to, how much of a drag that was. Right. Well, I could chat with you all day long. You're a fascinating human being. <laughs> well, you're fascinating yourself, and I, I haven't even gotten to interrogate you yet. 
And oh, uh, no, no. The, I'm the, the interrogator listeners... <laughs> here. You just you just sit down over there. I'm the interrogator in this office. <laughs> um, so tell us, how can people uh, contact you, find out more about you? You have website, social media. What do you got? I've got, I've got the whole lot except TikTok. I haven't haven't ventured into. Well, I don't really have the whole lot. I've got. Um, I uh, actually have a YouTube channel, which only has three videos on it right now, but more on their way. Uh, what I is have, your YouTube channel called? Oh, I, th- oh it's, I don't have a name for it. It's just uh, YouTube.com slash, I think, Ishtar Ishaya. Uh, so I, I don't have okay. any name for it yet. Um, just okay. pegged to my... You my, have a couple of... I have websites. websites yeah, you? that's the best way to think to get a hold of me. I've got a meditation website, and I've got an astrology website. My meditation website is www.ascension-meditation.com and my astrology website is also long-winded it's www.awakenedlightastrology.com uh, yeah those are the best ways i'm 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 for somebody who's supposedly people call a spiritual teacher i probably post way too much on facebook uh you know so that's points against but I'm also fairly active there, and I and uh, if you find me on Instagram, uh, I you know <laughs> don't expect anything profound there. Uh, yeah. uh, what are, what are you on fa- what are you on Facebook? Oh, uh, Ishtar Howell. Got my, Ishtar monas- Howell. Okay. my monastic name mixed with my uh, birth name. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Uh, I'll have to look that up. Yeah, I I think you know that social media thing is, <laughs> you know. There's a lot of bad about it, but there's a lot of good about it because you can reach a lot of people yeah. and share a message that they might not come across in another way. And I know a lot of people are like, social media is the devil or oh, whatever, yeah, but yeah. I think there's, there's, you know, there's good uses and bad oh, uses. Oh, God. I mean, yeah, I was, I was in jest mainly there. I love it. I've, I've, I've encountered so many, I'd say soul friends. And then, and then mm-hmm. when I get to go meet them in person, it's, 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 it's like, Wow. You know, it's like, have, are we really just meeting now? I don't think so. You, you know, so it's so profound, profound um, friendships have been found uh, through Facebook. For me, mainly yeah, that's Facebook. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. I'll have to uh, look you up. You know, I've got to tell you, I'm pretty truthful about everything, probably to a fault, but <laughs> I was a little concerned about having you on the, not about having you on the podcast, but just, from reading about you, you're like this extremely spiritual dude. And I was thinking, ah, how relevant are you going to be? You're so relevant. You're cool. You could be Jack Black. You could be a comedian, you know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I love your vibe. I love Jack Black. He's, he's got a great vibe. So I take that as a high compliment that, that you pull that yeah, no, grab it out of your hat. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's very cool. You are, you're like surfing that line between this dimension and all the other dimensions and doing it really, really well. So um, thanks oh, that's for kind what of you're bringing you. to the world. That's, that's kind of you. Thank, thank you so much. I'm, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm glad. I've had the best time chatting with you. So thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you, Warwick. And uh, keep doing what you're doing out there in the world because I think people like you are uh, changing, changing the human race. Oh, well. Thank you. It, it, it is a song that's kind of flowing through my body, so uh, in, it's, it's kind of almost selfish of me. I have to let the song play. It's what wants to happen. Uh, I, I'm glad you mentioned that because there was something you said 
twice in that that I thought was just such a great line, the song of your soul. And you mm. just mentioned that song again. So I want mm. to finish up with uh, thank you for sharing the song of your soul. Thank you. <laughs> and for you guys at home, thanks so much for uh, joining us and we'll catch you on the next episode of the Journey on Podcast. Thanks for being a part of the Journey on Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick has over 850 full-length training videos on his online video library at videos.warwickschiller.com. Be sure to follow Warwick on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram to see his latest training advice and insights. <laughs>